Well, good morning, New City, and thanks for joining us this Sunday. Uh, this sermon today is actually going to be a little bit different than what we have really ever done before here at, uh, at New City on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, just to give you a little behind the curtains scene here, in ministry or in pastor world, there's a kind of a distinction that's made between just teaching and preaching. Teaching is just kind of sharing you the information about the text and giving you lots of stuff to think about. And preaching is not just information, but trying to help make it transformative. So uh, here's how it is relevant to us today, here's how it applies to us today, and here's how the gospel makes a difference in this text. Um, that's typically what we do. Uh, today is going to be completely different. Again, I've never done it in this style before. Uh, today is just straight up teaching. It's going to feel like a lecture. I was attempted to wear my glasses this morning to really fit the part. I'm always like impressed when you put them on and then you take them off to say something really serious and you put them back on. Um, but that would be disingenuous, so I didn't do that. Um, today, however, the reason why we're doing something different, so I'm just cards on the table. You're going to have to track with me today. Like, I don't got any funny stories. You're just going to have to track with me. I think this is fascinating what we're doing, but I'm a pastor, so I'm a Bible nerd, so of course I do. Now, here is why today we're taking a little bit of a different approach. One of the things we say often here at New City Church is that Scripture is wisdom or meditation literature. In other words, it is meant to be read, reread, discussed in community. As you read it and reread it, you then make sense. Stories make more sense in light of other stories, whereas if you just read it once, you would miss things. And so they inform one another. And that is how it's meant to be read. And so as you see Scripture as meditation literature, you slowly learn about more about the character of God, who we are, where we came from from and how God interacts with us, that he has rescued us and how he has invited us to live. Um, it's a good, and so today's story in Genesis is a good story to show you what meditation literature actually looks like and how when you read other stories back into the story you're reading at the moment, it actually makes a lot more sense than if you just read a story on its own. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We'll see if you like it. Uh, disclaimer, as we jump in, uh, this story today is going to involve some tough sexual issues. Again, the goal is never to be crass, but we want to let Scripture speak to us. And so I just want to kind of give that disclaimer. There's going to be some tough topics that we discuss in this story. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and join me in Genesis chapter 9. If not, there's a black one around you. You can turn there. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We have been in Genesis for uh, mo most of this year. And uh, not going to do a recap of everything, but last week was our first week back in the Genesis story. We're picking up the story of Noah. If you're, even if you're kind of new to the church, you might be familiar with the story of the flood and all that sort of thing. And so we talked about that. Uh, last week, we picked up the story. Noah and his family had gotten off the ark. They'd offer, uh, offered a sacrifice to God, and we're hoping, man, is this the character? Again, since the beginning of Genesis, beginning of, since sin entered the world, brokenness entered the world, who is the one that's going to redeem us? Noah is righteous and blameless. He, God rescues Noah and his family. Is this the one that is going to bring us rest and comfort? Again, last week we talked about how this is a recreation story. There's a lot of parallels in Genesis chapter 8 and 9 from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so, hey, is Noah the one that's going to rescue us? And yet again, we're going to see sin uh, turn its ugly head. And so we'll pick up the story. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 18, it, starting verse 18, it says this. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth populated, or the whole land populated. Now, again, a couple of times in this story so far, we have seen Noah's sons be named in this order. So on the ark, it was Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And so far, every time it's been Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
However, you'll see in, in verse 24 that actually this isn't the birth order. You might assume it's the birth order, but it is not. In verse 24 of chapter 9, we're told that Ham is the youngest. And in chapter 10, verse 21, uh, it implies that Shem is the oldest. In other words, the birth order seems to be this, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, in other words, why this matters is Ham is actually the youngest son. Now, why does that matter? Two reasons. One, because sibling rivalry is being set up again. We've already seen this with Cain and Abel. I've said multiple times throughout the Old Testament, there is a theme of the youngest and the oldest. There's a competition of a rivalry of who's going to take power, who's going to take control. And so Ham is actually the youngest of the brothers. And the second reason that's significant is because this story is about the youngest son uh, potentially trying to usurp the position of the eldest son, of the roles, rights, responsibilities, and privileges of the oldest son in a family, we're going to see Ham is going to try to take it for himself, which I'll explain how in in a few minutes. Now, also worth pointing out, Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, for us, that just might be a random interesting detail. But again, for ancient Israel, this was hugely significant. That Canaan, the Canaanites, were the, one of the biggest rivals for the Israelites. They did a lot of very wicked things. And so when you read that, you automatically assume, oh, something must not be good about Ham. Something bad must be coming if Canaan is being introduced here, which is the father of the Canaanites. So your kind of red flag warning symbols are up, or signals are up when you see that Ham was the father of Canaan. You assume, oh, this can't be good. So here's what happens, verse 20. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. So he plants a vineyard. In Hebrew, the word is eretz, which can also mean tree. And so again, just like the Eden story, you have a garden with tree and fruit. You have this here, a vineyard. Uh, We're seeing parallels to Genesis chapter 1. That God, again, when they got off the ark, he brought order out of the chaos, watery darkness. The family gets off the boat. Uh, Last week, we saw that they were told to be fruitful and multiply. And then also, this first family after the flood also has a garden, just like the first couple. Uh, What this is called is narrative patterning. Again, it's taking previous examples or previous stories and seeing them replay. That Noah here is supposed to be seen as a new Adam in a garden, and then something terrible happens that resulted from the sin committed from the fruit of the vineyard, right? You see this replaying again. Now, to be clear, this specific text doesn't uh, specifically condemn or comment on Noah's drunkenness. This happens a lot throughout scriptures. A lot of things that are happened that might not necessarily be good or bad. Uh, they're not, the, 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 the narrators don't comment on the good or badness of those things because uh, they're focused on something else in the text. But you see Noah does something here that probably isn't good. In fact, we know this is good, even though it doesn't explicitly condemn his drunkenness because many times in the Old Testament, Uh, drunkenness is connected with God's judgment. And so again, when you read scripture and meditate on it, you see these points. And of course, in the New Testament, uh, believers are straight up told and encouraged to avoid becoming drunk. And so you can assume, oh, something must must happen because Noah has gotten drunk. Again, this brings to mind Genesis 3 all over again. A great sin has been committed. However, what we're going to see today is that is it even stranger or more confusing sin than what Adam and Eve did when they took from the fruit of the tree in Genesis 1. And so here's what happens. Verse 22 says, Ham, the father of Canaan, so that's highlighted again, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. 
So again, father of Canaan, something, again, that's got to be ominous here. Uh, Noah, what's happening? He gets drunk, which is not good. And then he exposes himself in the tent. Ham sees, a fa- sees his father's nakedness, or literally could be translated, he looked upon the nakedness of his father. And then he goes outside and he tells his brothers what he saw. So that's interesting. It doesn't say what exactly happened, but he goes and tells his brothers. And then it says this in verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth, the two brothers, the older brothers, took a cloak, placed it over their shoulders, and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked, or they did not look upon the nakedness of their father. And so again, here later, Shem and Japheth, after Ham tells them something that happened or what he saw, they go in, but they do not do what Ham has done. Instead, they don't shame their father, but they honor him. They walk backward and they cover him and then they leave. They turn their faces away. And again, they do not see the nakedness of their father. Now, again, if you're just reading this story on its own, especially today without an understanding of maybe uh, some of the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew idioms of the language for ancient Israelites, you just think, I don't know what's happening, but that's kind of weird, right? Uh, you might assume that Ham did something or perhaps he did something he shouldn't have done, but again, the text isn't explicitly clear. And so you're like, well, I don't know. That's kind of weird, but maybe he shouldn't have told his brothers. I don't know. Um, or maybe, you know, he just made fun of his dad to his brothers, which is like not the end of the world, but also like, it's not nice. I mean, you shouldn't make fun of your parents, but like, whatever. Um, but you're not sure. But then you see this response from Noah. It says this in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of the slaves to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. So you read this and you're like, what, what is happening, right? Noah is furious. He pronounces a curse on Canaan, which is really weird because Ham is the one who did something, not Canaan, right? So why in the world would Noah curse Canaan? And then he blesses his other two sons, Shem and Japheth, but he condemns Canaan, his grandson, to slavery to serve his brother's offerings, to serve, to serve Ham's brother's offspring. So again, What is happening? And again, this might be for you. You might assume, well, see, this is why Christians are dumb and naive. They got these really weird stories that don't make a lot of sense. People get really mad. And and so you read this book and you believe that, man, this makes no sense. So this is just like another fairy tale. Like, what are we supposed to do with it? And I want to say this. What we're going to read today, of course, is uncomfortable, perhaps, to our modern sensibilities, but it's just confusing. So what is actually going on? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you. Again, remember, Scripture is meditation literature, which means you read, you read it over again, and you see how different stories build on, reference, and explain one another. And so I'm going to show you how this is going to work in this story. Let me just lay this here. You could not come to this understanding of what I'm going to share today by just reading the story on its own. I want to be clear. If someone ever says, hey, I found this new interpretation of these stories of Scriptures, it's wrong. Okay, what I'm going to present to you today is not some new, unique understanding of the story. It is an ancient understanding, but you can only come to this understanding if you read this story in light of other stories in the Old Testament. And so, uh, again, we've already mentioned the parallels beginning in the beginning of Genesis, that there's this creation, and then with Noah, there's this recreation, there's this hope, there's this promise of blessing to be fruitful and multiply. Last week, we saw the covenant of God's grace and kindness and love towards his people. 
But again here, sin distorts God's blessing and his care. We see uh, what, what sin did Ham commit, and then how should, should we understand these curses and blessings is the question, right? What did Ham actually do, and what are we supposed to do with these curses? Now, there's three main ideas of what's happening in this text. Uh, one is that Ham actually castrated his father. Um, that's a minority view that's not really, not, it's not a really popular view at all, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on how you could get that from this reading, because um, it's not really thought of that's actually what happened. Really, there's one of two other things that people believe actually was going on here. Uh, the more popular view or understanding of what's happening is that Ham essentially did something sexually or he violated his father sexually while his father was drunk and did not really know what was going on. Now, uh, which perhaps even in our understanding, you might assume or imagine by reading the story, he looks upon his father's nakedness. Maybe he does something to his father and then he goes and tells his brothers about it. However, I would present to you that I am persuaded that something else is actually going on. And here's how you get this way. Here, here's how you get here. So in the Old Testament, and of course in other ancient documents um, of the ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian area, uncovering the nakedness of your father can imply sexual acts committed against your father. This is talked about in other parts of the Hebrew Bible, as well as in other ancient documents in the ancient Near East. It also, however, can imply sexual acts committed against a man's wife or your father's wife. And reading other passages in the Old Testament, uh, I think, helps makes the most sense of what is going on here. So, for example, in the book of Leviticus, particularly in chapters 18 through 20, uh, it's all about various things other nations do in practice and how that, that God's people are supposed to refrain from. So Leviticus is all about uh, laws and um, uh, sacrifices and a way to make yourself pure and holy before God. And, and God's saying, hey, don't act like these surrounding nations who do wicked and evil and despicable things, right? Don't be like these other nations. They are evil. They are sinful. Some of their practices go against the character of God. And some of these were actual sexual practices, sexual practices that were perverted and were not good, that they would take advantage of other people instead of loving and caring for them, which includes sexual practices against your father or their father's wife. In fact, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, it'll be on the screen. It literally gives that as an example. It says, if a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. This means that uncovering your father's nakedness can also mean having sex with your father's wife, depending on the context of the story. It could be your father. It could be your legal guardian. It could be the patriarch of the family. But that's what it's talking about. Now, sometimes it's talking about doing something to the patriarch, to the father, to the husband. And sometimes it's about doing something to his wife. Depends on the story. Gives you context about what actually happened. Regardless, quite clearly then, Ham has committed some sort of sexual act, either against his dad or potentially against his mom. And that's how you get that from this story, by reading other places like Leviticus. So the question you might then ask is, okay, but why would Ham then go tell his brothers? Like, that's just like, why would you like tell people that you did that? Well, that's a great question. Again, meditation literature, reading another story in Genesis actually sheds light into what might go, be going on here. So in Genesis chapter 19, I'm not going to read the story this morning, but it sheds light into, I think, Ham's thought process here. Again, remember, different stories build on each other. They help us understand each other. So that when we go back and read, we might pick up on things we might have missed the first time we read them. 
Okay, so in Genesis 19, it's the story of Lot, Abraham's uh, nephew. We'll read about this in a, a few weeks. Um, but a- Abraham's nephew, they travel together. Eventually, they separate because Abraham and his family and his animals are large. And Lot and his family and his animals are so large, they got to go separate ways. Uh, Lot settles in this place called Sodom. And then because of a lot of sexual perverse things happening and just wicked things that are happening, God brings judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And basically what happens is they're told to leave. Uh, and so they leave Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot and his two daughters and his wife and his daughter's husbands are all supposed to leave before judgment comes. But uh, Lot's daughter's husbands, I know it's a little confusing, don't believe there's going to be judgment. So they stay in the city. And then Lot's wife actually goes back into the city as well. And so they all get wiped out. They all died. Lot's wife and Lot, Lot's daughter's husbands die. But Lot and his two, two daughters, they leave. Uh, Sodom gets destroyed and they are terrified. They're afraid of what they saw what happened. And so they go and live in a cave away from all, from, from anyone else for a while. And then fearful that they're not going to have any children, Lot's daughters encourage one another to get their dad drunk. They take advantage of their father's nakedness. And then they, both of them become pregnant from their father. Now, again, for us in our modern context, you're like, like why, in the, why would you ever do something like that? Remember, in the ancient world, children were everything. They were your legacy, which was a big deal. They were your retirement plan. Uh, They were all that you had. If you grew old and did not have family to take care of you, things would not go well for you. It was everything to have children and continue the family name. They're afraid that there's going to be, that they're going to die out here on their own, that their their, their family line is going to cease to exist. And so they do this, not because they wanted to have sex with their dad. Again, I'm not trying to be crass here, but I just want to be honest. Well, because the idea of having children was such a big deal. Now, there are certainly differences between Genesis 9 and Genesis 19, but this helps us see the way of thinking in the ancient world that children were everything for survival and legacy. And remember, in Noah's story, Noah and his family, right now, they're the only people around. There ain't anyone else around them. And part of Ham's motivation is likely to have as many of his own children as possible because the bigger your family, the more money you can possess and the more power you can have. And so that has to be a motivating factor here is how can I have as many children as possible? And since the nakedness of the father can include the nakedness of the mother, it is possible that both Noah and his wife have become drunk and were lying exposed in their tent. Now, of course, that's not a good and a wise thing, but it isn't like they're out, out, out in the open about it, right? Ham had to intentionally go in and see what they were doing and see what was happening here. Um, I'm persuaded, again, the text doesn't say this, but I am persuaded that I think this is likely premeditated on Ham's part. I don't think he was looking for mom and dad and was like, oh, what's going on? And then decided to do something. I think he's after, how can I become the most powerful? What can I do? There's, in my mind, there's no doubt that this is a premeditated act on his behalf, taking advantage of the time where he can exert his, fa- his power over the family. And so I don't think this is a spur of the moment thing for him. I think he planned and thought how he would do this. Again, the text doesn't say this. But I think it makes most sense of what's going on here. And also note, again, meditation literature. Even up until this point in Genesis 9, we've had two other stories so far that seeing something has led to action on the part of humans, right? Uh, Eve saw the fruit was desirable in Genesis 3. And what did she do? She took it. In Genesis chapter 6, we talked about this a little bit ago. That the, it says that uh, the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took them. They saw and they took. And so the implication here is that Ham does not simply see, 
but likely that he sees something and he takes. He acts on what he saw. Now, again, what exactly did Ham do? It doesn't explicitly say, but I think Noah's curse helps explain that Ham actually slept with his mother, which was Noah's wife. Now, why would you say that? Well, in Noah's curse, he curses Canaan. So he eventually curses Canaan, which is one of the sons of Ham. But he does not curse Ham himself. Now, why would he not do that? Canaan didn't do anything. It was Ham that did this. Well, it makes a lot more sense if Ham actually impregnated his mom, and this is the son that was born to Noah's wife, of whom Ham was the father. Again, in Genesis chapter 10, when we see the genealogies of Sham, Ham, and Japheth, you actually find out that Ham has four sons. He actually has four sons. And yet Canaan is the only one that is cursed, right? There clearly is something different or significant about Canaan compared to these other children that Ham fathered. And it would make sense on Noah's part to essentially condemn this child and what he represents because of the power play that is at stake here. And here's why I say that. In the ancient world, sleeping with somebody's wife implied dominance. In some ancient communities, you would actually have a ruler or a king who would sleep with women before their wedding day to say that, you know, they're the one that ultimately has the power. Or if you were a king, you might have concubines or other women. And if you were a concubine of the king, that was your life. You could never marry another man because the king had slept with you. Right? The reason that Ham would have for sleeping with Noah's uh, wife, for his mom, is because he wants to usurp the authority of the family, that he wants to take control, that he wants to have the power, the influence to say that I'm the one that's going to be running these things. Uh, this actually is probably part of the reason, if not the main reason, why he tells his brothers to say, look what I have done. Like, again, I don't want to sound crass here, but it, it, it reminds me of the famous line from the 2013 movie Captain Phillips. You know, when team, uh, Tom Hanks is the, the captain of this big tanker, and they're sh- sailing off the coast of Africa, and these, uh, these pirates jump on the ship and take over. And you've, you've un- probably, if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably seen the meme, even if you didn't know it was from this movie. And the pirates get into the, like, the control center, and he's facing Tom Hanks, and he says, I'm the captain now. Right, that's what he's saying. Right? Again, I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but that's likely what's going on here. Ham is saying, here's what I've done. Here's what's how it's going to work. Here is now who is in charge. This is why Ham might want to not only make this act, do this act, but then tell his brothers about it. Of course, it is gross to us, but remember, sibling rivalry, the fight to be the, the greatest, as opposed to trusting God that there is enough for everyone. One of the themes throughout the Old Testament is people's lack and trust of God's abundance. And so they go and take for themselves. That's likely what is happening here. And again, meditation literature. So if you were to continue to read in the Old Testament, you would come to a story where this exact same thing happens. The story is in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And in this story, uh, this is later, the Israelites are in Israel. King David, who is like the strongest king that ever existed in Israel's existence, uh, he's king. But there becomes a point where his son Absalom is trying to take the throne from his father. And so David goes on the run. And in 2 Samuel verse 16, it tells us that Abraham sleeps with some of King David's wives and concubines. Now, again, when I say wives and concubines, again, this shows us that God uses broken and sinful people. David was a broken and he was a sinful person, just like us. 
Doesn't mean he knew great things, but he was broken. He was sinful. And so Absalom, because he wants to show his dominance, he wants to say, I'm the king now. He sleeps with some of the women in the king's court to show that he's the one in control. He does this, and the text even says this in 2 Samuel, to, as a proclamation. He's saying, I'm king now. He does this to show that he is king. And in this story in Genesis 9, if this is what Ham is doing, he is trying to take the status and power in the family. And so Noah curses what he has done. And so when you read 2 Samuel 16, you're supposed to think about this. Or when you reread Genesis 9, and if you've read 2 Samuel 16 before, you're supposed to be like, oh yeah, this is what you do when you try to explain dominance. You sleep with whoever the king's wife is. And so Noah then curses this. Now, again, you might think none of this is Canaan's fault, which is true. So why then does Noah curse Canaan? Why doesn't he just curse Ham to say, no, what you did is not right. It is not going to stand. You're not the one that's going to be in charge of this family and this new creation. Well, what Noah is doing here is what is known as a patriarchal pronouncement. And these pronouncements uh, were often concerned with family lineage and resources and who gets what. Typically, uh, these pronouncements were given uh, at the father's deathbed or when he was close to death. Now, it looks like it happens right away when you read this story. But a lot of times, a lot of times passes in these biblical stories that we're not really sure like how long a time had passed. My guess is that the time had passed a while. And perhaps this was later on when Noah was about to die. We don't know. But regardless, he makes this pronouncement. Now, when a patriarch makes a pronouncement, uh, a number of factors can influence what he says, even including his mood of how he's feeling in the time. And in fact, you see a number of these pronouncements also in the Hebrew Bible. A famous one is with Isaac and Jacob and Esau, for example, another sibling rivalry, which we'll get to. And they, they try to fake who's the, the oldest son and try to get their dad's blessing and all that sort of thing. Now, that's what's happening here is a pronouncement of blessing and curses to his children of what's going to happen. Now, likely, very likely, these pronouncements are much longer than what actually is recorded in Scripture. Uh, It doesn't tell us everything. It's just trying to tell us what is relevant to the story at hand. Now, biblical authors, um, again, include specific things to, to the story at hand. It's also worth noting that these pronouncements, even the ones recorded in Scripture, are not messages from God, nor are they presented as received revelations from God, from the man who gives them. So never when somebody does this, does, does the patriarch who's about to die say, God told me to say this. It didn't happen. It's simply the the man's prerogative to bless his children or to let them know the rules of what's coming next. Uh, God is under no obligation to fulfill these, and they do not necessarily reflect his will or his plan. Even still, these pronouncements were accepted with the utmost uh, gravity and confidence by those who received him. It's kind of like they spoke themselves into existence, right? The, the family would believe that what they said is going to come true, and so they put a lot of weight into them. And there actually are a number of occasions in the Old Testament where they end up, where they end up being fulfilled as, part, as God's plan unfolds. And actually, another, a number of times, it actually ends up happening just as this patriarch said. However, many times, the significance is seen and retrospect, which is what's happening here. How Canaan became such a big issue for Israel and how they did many detestable things, they're saying, this is the origin story of the Canaanites. This is what happened. Here's how they began. And so, of course, they're doing a lot of sexually perverse and terrible things like child sacrifice and a number of other things when Israel arrives in the promised land. Now, again, regardless, you might say, how is this fair to Canaan and his descendants, though? Because they're not the ones who did it. 
This brings to mind what God says to Moses in Exodus 20. So again, meditation literature, reading other passages helps us understand better what's happening here. In Exodus 20, uh, this is where God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And one of the commandments is having no false idols. This is actually the most referenced passage of Scripture in Scripture, is this right here. And here's what it says. God says this to Moses. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands." What's happening here is God declares for Israel that he is their God and that by following his commands, they will demonstrate his power and his glory to the world. That The nations will be able to see the light and the goodness of God. That there is nothing like God, so do not try to recreate or give something my glory since nothing can come close to me. And as we've seen, even in the first nine chapters of Genesis, one of the reasons why God does not want humans to create idols, well, one reason is because nothing we create can come close to his glory. Another reason is because he already has idols. Us, humans, are created in God's image, and when we reflect God's character to the world, we reflect God to the world. He already has idols. He does not need anything else. Now, you might say fair enough, but verse 5 is where it causes us tension, where he says, I'll bring in the consequences of the father's iniquity or the father's sin on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, now the problem is, what is happening here? Is it fair for God to punish someone's great-grandchild? That's essentially the question. Is that fair and is that just? I would say no. And actually, that is not what this text is actually saying God does. Again, this is a Hebrew idiom or Hebrew figure of speech. Whenever someone would say to the third or fourth generation, it was a Hebrew idiom meaning however long it takes. What God is literally saying here is, I will bring the the father's sin on the children to the third and fourth generations, or I will bring the sin on the father's offspring for however long it takes. What he's saying here is that those who continue to sin like their parents continue to walk in the same manner of their parents and do things that are evil and wicked or unrighteous will continue to experience the same punishments or judgments. However long it takes for them to repent or to turn away, they will continue to experience uh, discipline or punishment or rejection or judgment from me. And you see this in the book of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, in the book of Judges. You see generation after, after generation of sin, repentance, but then they go back into their sin. They act like their parents acted, and so they receive judgment. Now, the contrast here is with God's love, that a thousand generations, again, this is metaphorically speaking here, what God is saying is that his love does not end, that his desire is to bless his people forever, and that God's love is greater than his punishment. Or put another way, this actually means the opposite of what it might think. So so for us, we sometimes think, well, this is just my family name, this is my heritage, everyone in my family does this, or this is what happens to us, and so I'm no different. What God is saying here is that regardless Regardless of what your parents has done, your grandparents have done, or what has been done to you, regardless of that, if you turn and repent and trust in me, you will be redeemed. You will be forgiven. You will be loved. You are not marked on this course that it has to look like how it's looked like in previous generations, that all you have to do is trust in me, and I will graciously love, forgive, and care for you here. 
But if you continue in the way of your parents, in the sin of your parents, you will not experience my blessings because you have not come to me. This, in other words, is pointing us forward towards the gospel, where Jesus takes the sin on our behalf, and all we, what do we have to do? Trust and repent. That we have to be honest about our need for God, and that he graciously accepts us right where we are, regardless of what has been done to us, regardless of what our family lineage is, that right here, right now, any one of us can experience the grace and mercy of God. And so, in regards to the Canaanites, this story is showing us in Genesis 9 that right away, they got off on the wrong foot, right? Their their forebearers uh, got off on the wrong foot. How their forebear came into existence was not good. And we're going to see that Canaan is going to be fruitful and multiply. He's going to have a a lot of children, eventually a great nation. But his descendants are meant to be slaves or subordinates. And again, this is a similar pronouncement. There's some parallels here to to what God says to Adam and Eve, where they are told uh, that the curse that they are be giving after taking of the fruit will impact their status in regards to food. food. In other words, they will be fruitful and multiply, but it will be hard work for them to cultivate, to, to eat, to continue. It will take work for them. And here, the Canaanites, why this is significant, is the Canaanites end up behaving like their forefather. So by the time that Israel gets into the promised land, what's happening? Well, you're seeing incestual relationships happening in Canaan, people sleeping with their parents, trying to gain authority. There's child sacrifice. There's a lot of terrible things that are happening, which is why ultimately Canaan is judged. A Hebrew scholar puts it this way. He says the Canaanites are to suffer the curse and the bondage, not because of the sins of Ham, but because they themselves acted like Ham because of their own transgressions and Canaan's uh, own transgressions. Canaan's slavery is spiritual, not just political. As the first scene clarifies, the difference between the future prospects of the ancestral brothers pertains to their morality, not to their ethnicity as such. So if Canaan's offspring continue to behave in the behavior of how Canaan came to existence, they will also be judged. And again, as I mentioned, uh, Canaan was used in Leviticus as an example of how not to live. This is how you are not supposed to live. And so, it, and it's also worth noting, later on, Israel's in, in the, the promised land. What happens? Well, eventually, Israel begins to act like the Canaanites, and they also become under captivity, and they also get driven out of the promised land. That God is equally just to everyone. That's what's happening here. Now, I said it's a lot of information. I get it. If you're still with me, here's one last thing I just want to point out, okay? Um, some have argued that this text legitimized American slavery in the past, Right? Perhaps you've heard of this argument, perhaps you haven't, but it was a very big thing in the American South in the 1800s when slavery, Civil War, all that stuff was going on. Uh, the argument was that the Africans were descendants of Canaan, and thus they should be enslaved because that's what they're supposed to do. The Canaanites were from Abraham, and, or the Canaan, Canaan was told he was going to be a slave, and so that's where they came from. Um, that Ham was the forefather of the African race, it was argued, and that therefore slavery was even biblically, biblically mandated because of the curse. Now, I'm not going to go into all this. I just want to say two things really quickly because this is a thing that the people say. Uh, it's wrong for two reasons. One, there are few families from the line of Ham that result in dark-skinned people. So in, the, in chapter 10 and 11, you see the genealogies of, of Shem Ham and Japheth, and where their family clans start ending up. Some of Ham's descendants end up in in some of the African regions, but most of them do not. Uh, Therefore, there is no actually direct line of descent connecting Ham or the curse of Canaan to dark-skinned Africans. That's actually, you can't make that biblically, there's no connection there. Uh, Secondly, remember, a curse does not create 
a mandate. It is something for God to carry out, not for humans to carry out. Now, God might use humans at times, but it is not for humans to declare and then for humans to go and do. And remember, this is Noah's curse. This is not God's. God did not say this. Noah did. So there's a lot more that could be said, but I just want to say, that's where this comes from. It is completely wrong. It is completely wrong. Now, in conclusion, uh, Ham, I want to say this. There's a lot of information. I want to put this together, okay? Uh, Ham sins in a grievous way, a very grievous way, while his brothers act honorably. They don't do what their brother does. They act honorably. They respect their mother and their father. They walk backwards into the tent and cover their parents. They do not look upon their parents' nakedness or do anything inappropriate with them. They are blessed. Ham is cursed. Shem, as you might have, uh, might have seen point out as we read the, 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 the announcement from Noah, was elevated the most, which is actually going to make sense because Abraham is going to come from the line of Shem, which, of course, the Savior of the world, Jesus, ultimately comes from. Now, as I say all that, I want to say this. All of this is quite vague. If you read this on a cursory level reading, you would be like, how in the world did you get here? Um, I just want to say this. When you begin to see scripture as meditation literature, let scripture interpret itself, you begin to, I think at least, this at least makes a lot more sense of what's going on here. Um, it makes a lot more sense of the curse that Noah gives to Canaan. Um, now, again, to be clear, the text does not explicitly tell us what Ham did. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. So it doesn't explicitly tell us what Ham did, but it seems in my view, what we shared this morning, to make the most sense out of Noah's response. Uh, there is no question, I just want to say this, there's no question the text could have been much clearer if it wanted to about what actually happened. But if the goal of the scriptures is just for us to get information, it would do that. If the goal for us is to meditate and to learn and to discuss, then that's why perhaps it is not so clear. And so as I close, I just want to say two things if you're still with me, okay? Great job. I feel like I should hand out graduation caps at the end of this. First thing, number one, scripture is meditation literature. This story shows us what I mean when we say that. I also want to point out that there is a difference between description and prescription. Many times we get in trouble. Many times people uh, inaccurately attack the scriptures or the Bible because they read really bad things that happen, and they assume God says, go and do this. The story of what Ham did is a description. It's just telling us what happened. It is not prescription. It is not saying, go and do this. So there's a difference there. This story is just telling us what happened. Now, you also might feel overwhelmed. How in the world did you figure all that out? You might be thinking, like, there's no, I, no, I, there's no way I could have gotten that from this story. Let me just tell you, it's not like when I was prepping for this sermon, I was like, hmm, this reminds me of Genesis 19. And this reminds me of 2 Samuel 16. You know, I, I spent hours studying this stuff, okay? Like, it's literally my job. I'm not more gifted than you are, right? So I just want to say this. If you feel overwhelmed by all this, um, it's okay. Uh, take your time. Uh, I would encourage you to continue to, if you're new to New City, come with us. Study the scriptures with us. Uh, read, sit, try to make connections. Like when you see uh, siblings, when you see people taking and seeing as you read and reread, you might be able to see, oh, there's, there's themes going on here. Or maybe even most importantly, join a group. You can text NCC groups to 97,000 if you're not a part of a community group. We literally discuss what, we, what was preached on on Sunday so that you can, for yourselves, dive into the scriptures. It is meditation literature. It's meant to be read and discovered over a lifetime. So it is okay if you can't get this right away. And in conclusion, here's how the story ends, verse 28 and 29. It says this, now Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So Noah's life lasted 950 years, then he 
died. Again, we, a few weeks ago, you can go back online or watch the, listen to the podcast if you want. We talked about the ages of people and how they live that long and how we're supposed to understand that. Uh, after Noah, again, after the flood, people start to begin to live a lot shorter comparatively than before the flood, and he dies. And now, in other words, Noah's story does not end on a high note. We are left searching, okay, he wasn't the one. Who is the one that's going to redeem us, right? We don't know here, but we do know that sin is still prevalent. And so as I end, here's just what I want us to know, okay? That scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. That is another thing that we say often here at New City Church. That point, the point of the scriptures is not that we try to study them and then see how dense and connected it all is and be like, oh, that's so cool and making these connections and figuring all that. That's great. That's cool. That's great. But the main point of the scriptures is to show us who God is, who we are, and his plan of redemption. The grace and the mercy that he's continually shown, that he does not turn his back on his people. That even in this story of someone trying to take authority and power into their own hands, God's plan to redeem and forgive cannot be stopped. He could be like, well, I'm wiping them out again. Like this does not, this isn't working. Like the first family right away, they're already screwing up. But that's not what happens. That, that he continues, that God eventually calls Abraham, eventually sends Jesus to redeem us from our sins. And so as I conclude, I just think for us, maybe, maybe for you, as you think and consider in your own life, man, how often, just like Ham, do we try, maybe not to the same degree, right, but we try to go at it on our own, that we try to figure it out on our own, that we try to prove our own worth on our own, that we say, look at me, I deserve it, I, I earn it, I, I'm good enough. The gospel, hear me, is what God did, not what we tried to do and figure out on our own, that his abundance has no limits. And so instead of striving and working and trying to get it for ourselves, that we trust in the goodness of God, that he loves us where we are, that he redeems us where we are, and he invites us into a relationship with him, not because of our effort or because of us trying to be a good person, but because in the midst of our sin and our shame, he sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And even this story is pointing us to a future hope who will not fall sin, fall, fall prey to the sin of the tempter, but will be a perfect redeeming sacrifice for us. And that's who Jesus is.